0: Welcome to The Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. righty, everyone. It's my job to call this unruly group to order i hope you all enjoyed lunch it was the low bid but it wasn't that bad right all right i'm mike murphy co-director of the center uh and i'm here to host our next panel with two esteemed guests but i want to start by thanking our incredible co-sponsors here politico the one and only americans magazine and newspaper of politics we got a couple of their ink-stained wretches here so thank them and my friends at Unite America, who in my view, one of the last great hopes to make systemic changes in the way we elect people to make it more market based and get better outcomes. So Unite America, everybody. Thank you so much for Friends. Nick, Nick, uh, the big cheese there, a great American. All right. Welcome to our panel, the future of precinct analysis <laughs> from the deep state. No, I'm lying. <laughs> That's a lie. And this panel is about lying. And we have two non liars here to help us sort out the truth decay the truth decay my my friend doctor uh, from fresno the dentist just stood up a little bit the (laughs) thing truth decay so let me do the introductions to uh my left here uh not ideologically but uh on the chairs is the one and only michael d rich who's president emeritus of the world famous and super respected rand corporation which he led as ceo from 2011 to uh, 2022 recently He focused on extending RAND's influence, challenging to innovate and address crucial issues. Importantly for our panel and for our country, Michael co-authored Truth Decay. And it's a great book. You can get it. There's a lot of content on this. It's incredibly important, particularly now. Uh, Truth Decay was a landmark study on the erosion of civil discourse. In 2020, he launched Tomorrow Demands Today. Rand's most ambitious fundraising campaign, supporting bold research and perspectives on critical issues. So his co-author, and I highly recommend this book, he sent it to me, and it's so relevant right now. It's called Truth Decay, An Initial Exploration of the Diminishing Role of Facts and Analysis in American Public Life. We're going to dive in on that. Also with me, my pal, the great Sasha Eisenberg, who is an author of a captivating spectrum of books exploring topics from the global sushi business. Hint, keep it in the fridge, to medical tourism and the science of political campaigns. He wrote a very famous book about how data is changing uh, politics, which was must-reading for everybody in the practical politics business. He's also a, a politics reporter with long experience. He reported on the 2008 election for the Boston Globe and 2012 for Slate with Bloomberg Politics 2016 and Business Week and in 2020 for The Recount. He's currently uh, working with Politico, I believe and teaches at UCLA. He's also written for New York Times Magazine, George, where he's a contributor and an editor. He has a new book coming out, The Lie Detectives, in search of a playbook for winning elections in the disinformation age. And I think this is going to have the same big impact as his earlier book on data. So let, let's start right with it. We'll do some questions after we, we dive in with the panel. Uh, we're going to start with Michael. And the question is, truth decay. What exactly is it? Let's get a definition to work out from, and then we'll go to historical antecedents. So We'll start with you and then Sasha, chime in, please.
1: Well, it's the term that uh, I've been using for about 10 or 12 years to describe the diminishing role of right. facts and analysis in public life. It's not a term that I thought of myself. A colleague of mine's, uh, Sonny Efron, uh, who later went on to be the president of the American Press Foundation, National Press Foundation, uh, suggested that, uh, as a, as a better descriptor than a diminishing role and so on. And I began worrying about this and then talking about it uh, around 2005, primarily because I was worried about the implications for the future of RAND, the organization I was responsible for. Uh, Our mission is to uh, analyze important problems of national security, social and economic policy on the basis of facts and rigorous analysis. And I worried that if people weren't going to make decisions. Uh, based on facts and analysis, as much anymore in the future. Uh, it didn't bode well for our business model. But over the years, I got um, a little wiser, and I realized it was also uh, a threat to good governance. Right. And ultimately, I became concerned that it was a threat to democracy itself. And so, in 2016, I guess I uh, organized a conference at RAND to focus on truth decay, and um, I gave the opening remarks at this meeting, and uh, one of our donors said to me at a break that uh, he had heard me talk about this for years and years, and I sort of thought he was going to lead up to a compliment, but instead he <laughs> said, so, you know, when are you going to, you know, actually do something about it? And so the book was an attempt to define this phenomenon that i was experiencing it was a slice that i was experiencing propose a conceptual framework that identified causes and consequences and the linkages between them we looked at some historical antecedents i know we're going to get into that because a lot of people expressed kind of surprise that i thought it was anything new right. uh it had uh happened before and uh and then uh, we outlined uh, a research agenda to identify and respond to all the things we didn't know, but we thought we needed to know uh, in order to fight it. And since then, I'm, I'm pleased to say that Rand has produced, I don't know, 30 or 40 subsequent uh, analyses on various dimensions of the problem. Sasha, so, you know, we've known you
0: for a long time. You've been a campaign reporter. In the old days, we'd be in the headquarters saying, well, we can't say that. It's not true. We'll get caught and they'll kill us out there. Now, the objective fact business seems to be pretty shut down in politics. How would you define the status quo and why we need, you know, lie detectives?
2: Yeah. So people have always lied in politics, right? This is, this is nothing new. Um, but anybody who had the, an individual or institution that had the capacity to reach a large number of people quickly could sort of be held accountable the way that you might assume that if we're caught lying, It'll be on the front page of the paper tomorrow, or the editorial board will um, castigate us for uh, for it. It'll be attributed to us as the campaign, and there will a marketplace of ideas or of you know attitudes will play out. And and whether it's the electorate or our donors or other Republican politicians we care about, they will judge us for having spoken in a way that they didn't think was right. What has changed dramatically in the last years? because of the internet, and we could dig into what exactly about the internet does this, is that the barriers to entry for communicating have gone down significantly, right? So anybody basically can launch a lie, artificial intelligence tools, make it not just lying words, but lying images and video and audio. And that can get a velocity and reach that is sort of unparalleled in in communication, and it becomes often without ever identifying the speaker in a way that they could be held accountable. Um, and so what you have that's really interesting to me in the context of a political campaign is the campaigns that you were working on, Mike, you thought of your competition as other legitimate political actors who are constrained by... The same laws, the same campaign finance rules, um, uh, the, a bunch of norms and expectations about what, like, the local newspaper will sort of accept or the League of Women Voters will, will tolerate. And the campaign played out within the understanding that you guys had the same set of constraints. Now you're a legitimate political actor. You're still dealing with those same constraints and the people who are, challenging you, sometimes truthfully and sometimes with lies, are not operating under any or all of those constraints. And that creates a ridiculous asymmetry in terms of how public debates are are being waged. And that's the thing that really drew me to write about this subject.
1: I agree with what uh, Sasha said, but I think the challenge is much larger than that, and the problem is much more insidious because it goes back to how I think about truth decay and why I prefer that term to terms such as post-fact era or post-truth era. One is the erosion of any distinction, the blurring of the line between fact and opinion, whether or not there's an intentional lie involved uh, or not. The second, which Sasha, I think, implied is the explosion in the quantity of opinion relative to right. it. And the third uh, trend is the diminishing trust across the public in institutions that formerly were regarded as authorities when it came to fact, accuracy, scientific knowledge, and so on. And all three of those trends are contributing to a fourth trend, which is increasing disagreement about objective facts and scientific consensus and analytical interpretations of data. So the intentional lie is a very important, very challenging piece, particularly as technology advances and it becomes easier to fabricate audio and video, as well as so-called facts. It's a lot more than that. It, It has to do with the unintentional creation of misleading information and the inability of people to tell the difference between a fact and opinion. And I should say that, you know, they're both have value. They're both information, but they're not the same. And they need to be kept separate. And uh, there are a variety of causes that are making that more and more difficult, including the change in the information landscape.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me, because as a veteran of the days when we would fear in a campaign being punished for lying, There's no penalty now. And I'm often torn. I'd be curious what both of you think about this. Have we made the ugly discovery that lying doesn't matter to the voters? They're perfectly comfortable with it or that they don't believe verifiable facts exist. So how can you lie when, you know, that's not true because nothing is true? You know, which hellscape do you think we're in or is it a mix? I mean, I
2: remember talking to people who make political ads who decade or two ago would be really insistent on having, you know, torn newspaper headlines in the 30-second spot because voters aren't going to believe this unless they see that the Detroit Free Press said it or that the LA Times said it, because those are credible civic institutions. And there are not the type of, you know, sort of independent referees in our society that are broadly trusted in the way that that you can appeal to them. And so it's not clear how you would even begin to try to validate to a, you know, a a selection of of portion of the electorate that what you're saying is to be trusted, whether it's fact or opinion, but that it's it's grounded in something. And so, yeah, I think that that's, you know, that there's a whole disintegration. We're talking about media, we're talking about academic, quasi-academic institutions, we're talking about the church, we're talking about a whole lot of institutions that once had a kind of, you know, central validating power to certain parts of the electorate, You know, civil society groups, the AARP, or Legal Women Voters, or whatever, and like all of those institutions seem weaker now as as sort of referees of of in our public conversation. We we used to have a a joke in the media business, the consulting business, an inside joke,
0: which was, "How do you tell a negative ad from a positive ad? The negative ad has to have at least one more or less verifiable fact in it." But that joke doesn't work anymore. (laughs) Michael, what do you think about this? Is the voters not caring about lying? Everybody lies, or Do they just decide that truth is so relative
1: that how can you lie? I've heard, in fact, one of the reasons why we dived into um, uh, earlier periods of history was that people said politicians have been lying since the beginning of time. But I think this era is substantially different, riskier, more dangerous than, than earlier eras. For me, the the concern is that um and people can't agree on a single set of facts. It makes civil discourse, the ability to have a constructive conversation about a a subject uh, on which they disagree. It makes that virtually impossible. And when that happens in government, um, it leads to, as we see so often, it leads to dysfunction and now increasingly paralysis. And my concern about that trend is that that will suppress levels of trust even further than they are today. I think everybody's familiar with the the Gallup survey that um, asks about levels of confidence in various important institutions. The top two scores in terms of confidence, a great deal of confidence, and I forget what the second one is, but the top two uh, uh, confidence scores, that dipped to 7% for Congress in 2022. It rebounded, fortunately, in 2023 to 8%. But, you know, that's the aggregate percentage Uh, among some demographic groups, some some subgroups of the population. It's even lower. And it's hard for me to imagine a functioning democracy when the levels of trust and confidence in important institutions is so low. So my concern is, as these levels of trust and confidence dip low enough and are sustained at low levels, that people will begin disengaging from civic institutions. We heard a little bit uh, about that in the panels in some of the uh, one of the panels earlier today uh, that talked about uh, disaffection among young voters, uh, you know, a tendency not to be involved in electoral politics, uh, registering, voting, and so on. And uh, that's why I think there's a linkage to these trends that make up truth decay in my mind to imperiling democracy. Let me follow up with you when we're moved to Sasha.
0: Let's do the historical antecedents here, because in some of your material, that was very interesting to me. You know, is this a human condition or something new going on? If we look back at history, I guess you can go to the Hearst Papers and the Pulitzer Hearst newspaper war for kind of a, 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 the beginning of a march forward in this area.
1: Well, I'll deal with the human uh, condition yeah, also, sure. but but uh, there have been at least three periods in American history since the Civil War that have some resemblance to the current era. One was the one you mentioned, 1880s, 1890s, the yellow journalism period. That's really when newspapers achieved their first mass circulation. There was income, in, growing income inequality. There was political polarization during that period. That's really the first period that looks a bit like today. A second period was in the nineteenth. 20s and 1930s. That's when radio replaced mass circulation newspapers as a principal source of news. It was an era, a lot of people are familiar with yellow journalism. It was called jazz journalism in the 1920s and early 1930s. And then, you know, the 1960s and 1970s featured dips in public trust in major institutions, not too dissimilar to what we're seeing uh, more recently. Fortunately, we came out of those periods. There are some common elements in those recoveries, but um, I don't feel any of those periods are nearly as dangerous as it is as they are today. One is for the reason that Sasha mentioned, which is that it's just much easier to spread disinformation, but also misinformation more widely. Second, the stakes are so much higher. I can't tell you how many times before the pandemic I said that, you know, today, if we miss a contagion because of truth decay, it has the capability of spreading around the world virtually overnight. That was not true in the earlier periods. If we misjudge an adversary's intention or capabilities, it's likely to be much more lethal today and affect the security of Americans and our allies in graver ways than in any other period in in history. And so another reason to be concerned. Now, getting to your point about the human, you're right. One of the causes of truth decay is our cognitive processes, uh, the cognitive biases that we all bring to the way that we access and process information. That hasn't changed. But so what has changed is the information landscape that Sasha outlined, uh, the inability so far of our education system to keep pace with those changes, uh, teach people the difference between fact and opinion, uh, sound statistics and statistics designed to mislead, and then polarization. And it's not just the political polarization that people are so familiar with, but also uh, the social polarization and economic polarization, all of which are are self-reinforcing. And so it's much, much easier in the modern era to have information bubbles form and to have them persist. And I think that that's what's going to make this era of truth decay both more dangerous, but also more difficult and challenging to turn around.
0: Yeah. Sasha, let me kind of follow up. You're a real expert on the technology side. It just It strikes me, we start with the trouble you can make with a printing press. Let's start the Spanish-American War to have Hearst beat Pulitzer in a newspaper war. Then Father Conklin, my hometown of Detroit, gets on the radio, mass communication in real time. Then the Vietnam War comes along with photojournalism, where pictures are the story. We all remember the famous picture of the Vietnamese police chief shooting. But the context of that was far more complicated, what actually happened there. Now we have the internet that makes the Hearst newspaper war look like a, you know, a game of uh, checkers. So is that the acceleration? And God, with AI, what's coming? We should
2: probably separate the ability to create content, which I think a lot of the AI conversation is about, right? right. Generative content. We've seen even examples in this presidential campaign in the last few weeks of deep fake or faked audio video. We should assume that the quality of that the ability for it to be, if not immediately persuasive, at least confusing enough to, to be damaging will only grow and probably at a, yeah. at a sort of geometric pace soon. So I think there's, there's that. And obviously there's, so there are just like incredible new capabilities of people to, you know, make fabrications. We talk about how the origins of Donald Trump's national political career was that he said that he lied about Barack Obama's birthplace. He said that into a microphone, basically, right? Uh, we are not dealing with a situation where, and he claimed he was sending a, private investigator to Hawaii to find the birth certificate. Um, he didn't even try to fake a birth certificate, right? So, like, anyway, there's that. Then there's the dissemination issue. And that's, I think, a large part of what we've been dealing with is that social media platforms in particular are largely frictionless. And we are at a moment now where, partially because of the liability issues involved, partially because of the political and, and public pressures that they are under, none of the social media companies basically want to take responsibility for content moderation. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to this. There's no good way to, to do this. It is incredibly labor-intensive to do it well. It is hard to create a set of of rules that are sort of universally consistently enforceable. Um, stuff moves so quickly that having a, what you would think of as a sort of fair appeals process where you know, and, and we're in a country where, unlike in many countries on Earth, there's a constitutional right to free expression that is potentially implicated here. And so, but the what we did not have, you know, the radios were, radio airwaves were regulated, at least to get your hands on a printing press was, if not regulated, had, as I said, barriers to entry in terms of costs and technology. Basically, it was traceable. You know, there were, Mike probably remembers the details better than me, you know, like that when we think about pre-digital disinformation in, in, right. in American politics, you know, people talk a lot about what the robocalls that attacked John McCain in South Carolina in, in 2000. Right. Robocalls and, and flyers in church parking lots, right? About claiming that his adopted uh, daughter from Bangladesh was a out of wedlock child. Just the technological hurdles that you would need in the year 2000 to set up call centers that could call numbers in South Carolina or like the mimeograph limits of the number of papers and the fact right. that somebody physically had to put them under windshield wipers was prohibitive to doing it so quickly or at such a scale that, that this could sort of spread in a, in a, in a quick way. And so I think that that's when we think about the, the, the technology, yes, the ability to create the lies is one thing, but I think really it's the frictionless spread that and the inability of I spent some time reporting in Brazil before the first round of voting in the general election a little over a year ago, where they have basically the most rigorous election regulator in in any democracy in the world. Uh, They have a court that has basically granted itself the authority to order takedown notices of content with no real checks and balances. And it works in that the court gives an order and social media companies will take down a post if, if... one justice on the on the Supreme Ele- Electoral Tribunal decides that something qualifies as propaganda, but that still takes hours to actually execute the legal process, and then Facebook has to go take down the thing, and you can't determine that it's just taken down in Brazil as opposed to in other countries, and you can see what just a few hours of something spreading online that can do to public opinion, um, even if in theory, like, it's fixed. Um, and so I think that that's the world in which we're living that we need to be thinking about.
0: Yeah, the speed of the internet is terrifying. I remember back in the old days, the Helms machine would get a picture of the Democratic candidate and they would, with scissors and a Xerox machine, put Brezhnev, Castro, mm-hmm. Colonel Gaddafi, and they would print a thousand of them and they would mail it to every small town barbershop, kind of Andy Griffin in reverse in North Carolina. That That was like top-secret evil disimp. Now, who would look at that thing and think, actually, they are all having a slumber party? But that was like the nuclear bomb. Now, with the power of the Internet, I mean, I could tweet something right now, and it could be a complete honk and lie, and 10,000 people would retweet it. And it never goes back in the toothpaste. So, doesn't this open up, Michael, the ability for foreign actors to interfere in our politics by pouring these ball bearings into the gearbox so to speak and you have the social media algorithms that when they find heat spread it more because they're judged on how many clicks they get to charge advertisers more to sell storm drains so it seems to me like a feedback loop of trouble
1: already happened yeah Yeah. no it's that's been happening in the last several election cycles and uh the capabilities are getting increasingly sophisticated so we're in what is you know, familiar to people in conflicts, which is a uh, move, counter-move, counter-counter-move. Uh, and, and that's why I think the disinformation challenge is a separate challenge, uh, understanding the threat, understanding the technology that the threat uses, um, and then working out both technological and behavioral responses to that threat. Um, but to me, it's just one slice a pernicious slice of a much larger problem which involves misinformation as well um It's not just a problem with the you know a, a, a small but important injection of disinformation uh in a um sea of facts uh there's just a lot of um opinions being um, mistaken for facts uh in the rest of the the public discourse so to both of you. The
0: your book, you know, The Lie Detectives in Search of a Playbook for Winning Elections in a Disinformation.
2: What do we do about this? So I think we have to think very differently about the challenge that to society or democracy and the challenge to any individual, uh, political campaign. And I think it's possible that we're understating the challenge to society and democracy and overstating the challenge that this poses to any individual candidate or campaign. I'll focus on the campaign side because I think done a good job explaining trying to explain some of the challenges to the broader population. I think that there's this weird fallacy that otherwise thoughtful and smart people about politics have sort of uh, come to accept which is on one hand we all know how incredibly difficult it is to change voters opinions, right? Like in a presidential in this presidential election, give or take 10% of the elector is actually going to be persuadable between the two candidates. We have reams of research showing, you know, how difficult it is for any individual advertisement or a piece of direct mail or piece of content to move a voter's opinion, how quickly, how difficult it is to hold or sustain that change with time. Uh, we know that there's going to be like 10, 12 billion dollars spent in this election cycle and that any individual expenditure, we were just sitting here talking about local politics and was, haha, he's only going to spend a million dollars running it. <laughs> and, and so we know with one sides of our brain that like it is very difficult to move opinions. And then. I think often people hear about a case of disinformation or misinformation, a falsehood, and ascribe magical powers to it to change opinions. So a great example of this is, you know, the the Mueller report attributed something like $100,000 to the internet research agency and Facebook ads. You would laugh at $100,000 being spent in a county executive election, but all of a sudden it's, oh my God, you know, and I think we need to have a sort of proportional sense of that falsehoods probably are no more effective than conventional communication at changing opinions, and that they would be having to take – it's not to say that we couldn't see the emergence of of a given falsehood that is largely persuasive, but we should be skeptical that, oh, some cluster of people online are saying that Joe Biden is like half mastodon now. And we all know it's only one-third. <laughs> now he's going to lose North Carolina because the anti-Macedon vote is just going to turn, right? Like, I I don't... So I think, like, we need to maintain a sense of proportionality that it is very easy. I think that there's a sort of, like, disinformation-obsessed media complex that basically thrives on finding things that are, like, moving at a fairly low volume online and drawing attention to them and amplifying them. And... Often it's, oh, this is trending, and it's 292 people shared it on Twitter, and we know how many voters there are and how hard it is to move their pins. Yeah. Anyway, so I think that that's the, the, the sort of electoral predicament. And so the challenge for a campaign or a super PAC or a labor union or anybody that's sort of a legitimate political communicator is being able to, in a nimble way, to assess which pieces of information, true or false or vague or uh, imprecise— are actually one, getting in front of voters who are persuadable um, because of filter bubbles or information silos or whatever we call them. The fact is that most bits of information circulate among people who already, whose opinions are and behaviors are already shaped. Um, one, which ones are actually going to get in front of persuadable voters? What the patterns of movement online lo- in online information landscape or, and offline information landscapes are where something can make a jump between like a small cluster of people who already dislike Joe Biden and will say anything about him to people whose opinions are in flux and then determine from the perspective of a campaign how and when to respond without one validating or amplifying it. There's a lot of social psychology research that suggests that if I say no, Joe Biden comes out and says, no, I am not part Mastodon that actually that leads people to believe that maybe there's something there to the way that algorithms are structured, that engaging with it even to try to knock it down or challenge or fact check, it can often have the effect of further spreading it. But more importantly, from a campaign's perspective, from their self-interested perspective, they have a set of communications priorities that day. And not to get distracted or diverted. And so the, some of the smartest people that are giving advice to, uh, in the, you know, this new five-year-old job of, you know, counter disinformation strategists and campaigns, the folks who are advising some of the people who are sitting up here earlier in the day is the best advice they often give is when not to react to something. Yeah. That this is uh, yes, this might be terrible. People are saying this about our candidate. But actually, the effort that we would expend trying to respond to this will either be counterproductive or will just get in the way of us talking about the things we want to be talking about. And so I think it's really important for us to, it, it's important for them out of their self-interest not to overreact, and it's important for us as observers the news and citizens to keep a sense of proportion about all that, too.
1: Excellent. Michael, you want to add anything to that? And then well, we'll I listened uh, closely because I, I don't know much about electoral politics, uh, the politicians I knew during my work around were already were, were elected. They yeah. were legislating or governing and so on, but not I didn't get to know them during the campaigns. And I I was kind of encouraged, Sasha, by your answer. Um, but I did think about 2004. And I wondered, Mike, maybe you were involved in this at some point in the Bush re-election campaign. One of his advisors must have said, hey, I, you know, I have an idea. Let's go after Senator Kerry's war record. Mm hmm. And, uh, if I were there, I would have thought that's the last subject we want to raise. We don't want that comparison drawn in the two candidates. But, um, in retrospect, it was,
0: yeah. it was a swift voting. It swift Not yeah. me. Wasn't there. McCain okay. guy. Okay. But, um, it was an effective political yeah. tactic because yeah. again, once it gets out of the toothpaste, Even if you're really good and you get 70% back in, which is near impossible, the other 30 is there. It's the old George Lakoff thing. Don't think of an elephant. What are we all thinking about?
1: Yeah, so, well, I I was kind of encouraged by your answer that maybe we're overdoing our concern at at the electoral level. But I also think you're right that we may be underappreciating the danger at the societal level. Uh, both because of the nature of cognitive processes, the cognitive biases we all have, but also the difficulty of turning around a set of trends that have been been proceeding for for two decades. Uh, so I think the challenge. There's no easy answer to the societal problem, yeah. and um, it's going to uh, take a multifaceted strategy, enduring over. A generation or more. And that is, is, um,
2: problematic given polarization. And I would also think that, that one of the bigger challenge, we talk about disinformation and I think that that makes us think in this sort of unitary way as like, here's this one tweet or here's this one deep fake video. It seems that there has been a sort of shift in the last few years from like, discrete information errors to sort of totalizing conspiracy worldviews in ways that, you know, January 6th is a great example of this, some of the QAnon-related violence isn't, that, that is affecting people's behaviors and is migrating from online communities to the real world and offline behavior. And I think that that everything I understand from people who do, like, you know, de-radicalization type work is that that's the more, mm-hmm. you know, seriously the more pernicious and harder to correct sort of issue online and and the thing that probably we should be more more concerned about is that there are people like who you know who who don't just disagree on or 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 believe that a certain fact is different but but actually live in a totally different sort of reality and with this totally different set of assumptions about how the world works
1: we hear about violence all the time in the news yet we rarely hear stories about peace There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: With that, let's get disinformation questions over here. We can tell big lies and uh, other disinformation over here. So just go to the mics, and
1: why don't we start with you, sir? So we heard a lot about misinformation, disinformation. What about propagation of inconvenient truths? And I would use as an example Gavin Newsom telling everybody to stay home, stay apart, and then he's caught on camera at the French Laundry. Doesn't that erode credibility of the elites and One last thing I'd say is uh, Martin Gurry's book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, is all about this. The ability of everybody to be a reporter so people can see with their own eyes what's true and what's not. And I think elites are losing massive credibility as a result of that propagating some truths Very well said. What do you think? Well, every institution that's lost trust is at least partly to blame. Uh, that's true of the media. It's true of government. It's true of research institutions like RAND. It's true of, of academia more generally. You've given us an example of why that's true for established career politicians. And so part of the response to the societal problem, I think one of four parts, is the institutions that have formally been regarded as authorities, and I think constructively in our history, need to take the steps necessary to read rebuild trust i don't think that's going to be enough but it's a necessary s- a set of steps that needs to be taken
0: yeah it's amazing i have some physician friends that are always like well now somebody goes on dr google and they come in and they straighten me out about pharmacology and all this stuff from uncurated unsourced quacks and i gotta get in a 20 minute argument mm-hmm. with them after you know 10 years of johns hopkins to explain that no you can't drink
1: torino for covid let's see do we have somebody here yes sir Um, Hi. Um, My my question has to do with um, climate change, you know, truth versus fact. All the scientific evidence shows that climate change is real. And, you know, they're trying to limit the um, increase in temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But, you know, the more time goes on, if we keep losing time to slow it down or even, I don't know if it can be stopped at this point, but There are platforms, for example, on the ocean for carbon sequestration. And the more time that we lose to truth versus disinformation on climate change, then we have to come up with more advanced technology to speed up carbon sequestration.
0: No, it's frustrating. We just did a survey uh, in the electric car space, and we asked people to agree or disagree with this statement. Climate change is a serious problem, and we have to take action. Or climate change is way overhyped and it's not that big a deal. 44% of the sample said not that big a deal and it's overhyped. So it's a classic case, but it's hard to say, okay, eat your spinach, read this science report, because the disinformation, well, that's not mega science. You're trying to fool me, deep state. And they don't believe it. See, we give people the option not to believe things when they don't want to, which makes them very difficult. I don't know if you guys have a, well,
1: for me, the question underscores the importance of uh, looking at how, how we're educating people. People have, I think, um, unwarranted suspicion of science. Uh, they have an underappreciation of the uncertainty that goes along with scientific findings at any given time. I'll just give you a personal example. When I was growing up, we were taught that Jupiter had the most moons, uh, Saturn had the most moons of any planet. Twelve moons, but in 1980 we had a spacecraft called Voyager that was able to get closer to Saturn and found out, nope, there were more moons than that. And today there, we know there are 134. I think there are others that are awaiting. Uh, verification. Uh, a lot of people take the progression of information, uh, the accumulation of scientific knowledge as evidence that you shouldn't respect science. You shouldn't believe science at any one time. And so that's just one example, I think, in a modern era of the types of things that we need to do a better job teaching people. Another is statistics and how to interpret surveys and polls and so on. And I think we'd be having a much more informed, um, constructive conversation about the effects of what we're experiencing in the climate if we had a broader and deeper understanding of just scientific knowledge. Being in denial is not really, you know, a good way to go, just in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, trying to p- pretend that the problem isn't there. I'm just going to tell my daughter we moved to Phoenix.
0: Uh, Okay. Yes, ma'am.
1: Two possible long-term solutions, both related to education and kind of building on what you were just saying here. Um, One would be possibly increasing civics education, which I understand has been in decline in recent years. And the other is teaching what I hear referred to as tech literacy, so people could be more discerning users of the Internet. Do you think either or both of those would be useful, and to what extent Both necessary, not sufficient. Uh, civics education has been in decline. It's actually a subject that Rand has worked on. Um, it's, there's a, there's some nice examples of, uh, a resurgence of civics education, Mm -hmm. but often narrowly, um, kind of thought of as teaching facts about government processes. Uh, the goals I think should be threefold. One is civic literacy, which goes beyond just knowledge of facts but skills to engage in in civic processes, Uh, civic identity, which includes a sense of civic duty and responsibility, and then um, civic engagement, which would emphasize participation in community affairs, electoral activities, and so on. And I think my judgment is we're just scratching the surface on that sort of broader agenda so far, but absolutely necessary. Yes, ma'am.
2: So I work in public affairs, but mainly um, related to Latino issues within the state. And truth decays, uh, of course, is a big topic, but um, very big when talking about communities of color, especially the Latino community. So when talking about media and building that trust for for these communities and talking about the upcoming election, what do you have to say about that, especially with L.A. Times huge layoffs of reporters of color. Um, just what do you see that are the issues that are upcoming in 2024? So I think one of the big challenges for people who are trying to monitor, track and assess uh, the the flow of disinformation, misinformation, especially in immigrant communities around the United States is one, an, a fair number of the tools that have been developed were developed in English and are not, I, I mean, increasingly there, are people are developing Spanish language tools for this, but especially into Asian languages and, you know the tools are limited like social listening tools for tracking stuff but often don't exist and then the the other big issue is the extent to which you know there there's significant visibility into what goes on 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 twitter or x less visibility into what goes on on facebook we could go through like each platform but when you get to large whatsapp groups that are like you know weird quasi communications broadcast uh media that are closed um when you get in end, end-to-end encrypted, uh, there's no ability for outsiders, um, researchers, to uh, see what is is going on there. And um, there's a, a, a big fear, you know, in, um, uh, you know, I think if you go, went down to Orange County, you'd find that among, you know, Vietnamese speakers in, in Garden Grove that... Um, they're getting a large, uh, share of their news or, you know, information through huge WhatsApp community groups that are, are really hard for, you know, and, and WhatsApp, because it's an encrypted platform, even more so than the other platforms is like, there's literally nothing we can do about, about content moderation. And so it, it, I think that's a huge, a huge issue that, and also a huge way in which some of the conversation about regulation or self policing doesn't won't play out in the information that's affecting certain communities the way it does others.
0: Sandy, quick question, and we're trying to get one more here. Question is about Lakoff. Um, yeah. I heard about his truth sandwich
1: recently, which is what the pr- how the press should handle lies. Comments about that.
2: Uh, so I think the basic idea is instead of saying no, I am not a mastodon, you yeah. say yeah. say the truth. I am one hundred percent human being. People are saying I am a mastodon. No, I am 100% human being. This is based on cognitive and social psychology in terms of not reaffirming the, the, the lie or, or uh, reminding people of it. Yeah. I mean, so there are all sorts of, I think, good bits of guidance on how to refute and respond to disinformation, how to, um, yeah, I think that there are, I think journalists are following a whole lot of prerogatives that are not necessarily to debunk lie, not necessarily not truth. But where debunking lies of political speakers is not the primary objective at, at any given moment, and so that may be the best way to respond to a lie. But you know, I think a lot of news stories are not structured as an exercise in in debunking; they're exercise they are designed in, as an exercise in communicating other forms of information. But yes, there, there are there are better ways than others for responding to falsehoods that that you encounter anywhere, and um, it's worth reading up on on those.
0: Last question. Question
1: mostly for
2: Michael Rich, but any of you also. So you mentioned that there were some sort of
1: historical periods in the past that are very similar to our current problem with truth decay. And of course, those times all ended. So I'm wondering, was there kind of a common pattern to what changes, factors, policies that helped to end those times? No uh, common factors that we saw in all of those instances, but there were some elements that appeared at least more than once. One, a rise of investigative journalism. Lincoln Steppens, Upton Sinclair, Ida Tarbell in the 1890s, uh, the investigative journalists of the 60s and 70s, Seymour Hersh and David Halberstam, and, uh, Woodward and Bernstein. There was also a lot of government reform in multiple periods, a big increase in data collection, data analysis in the federal government uh, at the end of the Depression, the Great Depression. Uh, lots of um, legislation in the 1970s about uh, government transparency and ethics reform and so on. In each case, in each of the three periods we studied, there was a national crisis that seemed to jumpstart the change. The Spanish-American War that uh, Mike mentioned in in the early 20th century, the Great Depression, obviously, the Vietnam-Watergate crisis. One might have hoped that the pandemic might have been the catalyst for this era. Uh, but it seems to have increased the you know, polarization even more. So this is going to be, I think, more resilient to the types of things that have worked in the past, than this era.
0: Thank you both very much, Michael yeah. Rich and Sasha Eisenberg. <laughs> Check out their books. They're incredible. If you go to RAND, they have a great 12-minute video on Truth Decay, which is shareable to your friends, and it really outlines it and does an excellent job of explaining the idea. So with that, we're going to bid you goodbye and prepare for the next panel. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Future. That's Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.